Welcome to the third episode of season two of the Bagley Wright Lecture series on poetry podcasts. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. The Bagley Wright Lecture series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. Season two of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Dorothea Lasky during her tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer, and links to accessory materials like transcriptions, interviews, and other writings. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. This week, we'll hear Dorothea Lasky give her lecture on the materiality of the imagination. This lecture was given November 21st, 2013 at Seattle Arts and Lectures. Following the lecture, we'll tune into a conversation between Lasky, paranormal investigator Vinnie Carbone, and mystic artist and spiritual healer Lou Flores. To learn more about Carbone and Flores and their work, click the link in this episode's description or visit the podcast section of our website. Dorothea Lasky's lectures explore the nonlinear and highly complex relationship between language, color, time, and meaning-making, considering, for example, her personal history with color and the eye as multiplicitous shapeshifter in search of the wild power of poetry. Please enjoy this episode. The lecture that I'm going to share with you tonight is called On the Materiality of the Imagination, and it's uh, part of a set of lectures, and it's just been great this fellowship period to, to think about these ideas about um, poetry. So I have section breaks, and uh, instead of saying one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, I'm just going to hold up my finger. So. Um, on the materiality of the imagination, I start with a quotation from the great band Hall and Oates from a song called Sarah Smile. And the song goes, um, baby hair with a woman's eyes, I can feel you're watching in the night. All alone with me and we're waiting for the sunlight. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. The Materiality of the Imagination. In this lecture, I will be discussing the materiality of the imagination, as if you forgot. In it, I mean to argue that the imagination is a physical space and that one shares with other people in and through poetry. That in a poem, we make a haunted land to mimic this haunted one, and that we populate this land with physical reality, to connect this world to the next and to other ones. When we read poems, what is important about reading them is, that, is what we create within the brains of others. This is what makes the possibility of a world past this one possible. A belief in a material imagination is important to me as a poet because I want to not just recreate this one through poetry. I want a never-ending generative universe that poetry can help create. One of my favorite poems by Alice Notley goes like this. All my life, since I was 10, I've been waiting to be in this hell here with you. 
all I've ever wanted and still do. When I first heard the poem, it was because my friend Laura Solomon had put it on a mix CD she made for me from Paris when I was living in Boston in 2005. She put it right before a song by Amadou and Mariam called Senegal Fast Food, so that the Notley poem was like an introduction to the song, which not knowing French seemed to me about a late night eating fast food in Senegal. But upon reading the translation of the lyrics to the song, I later learned was about falling in love and getting married in a rush, asking the question over and over, what time is it in paradise? Rushing into the question of what is timeless. In my mind, when I heard Notley reading the poem in the 1987 recording, I saw her at the St. Mark's Poetry Project reading it to a room full of people, telling them all, I have waited to be here with you, this chamber of poets and seers, this hell that I am now a part of forever. And by the way, it is a hell after all, all this gossip and dark living. I think I saw her in this place because in a recording of my favorite poem by her late husband, Ted Berrigan, called Red Shift, he is reading this poem in the Poetry Project. In my mind, the two conflate timelessly, almost at the same reading. But later, I learned, too, that Notley was reading her poem all my life in a real city called Buffalo, a place very charged for me with emotions. But that is, for many people, its own kind of hell. <laughs> it's a good thing we're pretty far from Buffalo, so we can say that. Much of my belief in a material imagination has to do with my belief in ghosts and a hope and horror that they really do exist. Even though I know that Notley speaks her poem wherever she does to a room full of poets telling them that she has waited to be with them and now she is reading her poem at a real poetry reading. I think she is also telling them here I am in the space of the imagination where you are too. Poems are special because they make a space, a real space, where we can all go. This place is a city called the imagination. It is whatever you want it to be. Half hell, half dream world, half paradise, half light and ashes. But poems are the special things that make it real forever. A belief in ghosts. My whole life I had an inkling that there were things like ghosts and that maybe some people were able to actually see them. But up until two summers ago, I had never actually seen a ghost. For the past two summers, I slept in a haunted villa while teaching poetry in a writing program in Italy. I had had an encounter with a particular ghost the first year and had told all of the other teachers there about it this past year. So for the whole month we stayed at the villa during the summer of 2013, the other teachers had all sorts of encounters. I did too, but none so as important as the previous summer, which I will tell you about in a moment. Nothing other than seeing a ghost has been as instrumental in my thinking about the materiality of the imagination and its importance in poetry. The villa has a long history of ghosts. Legend had it that there was a girl's shoe found in the wall. 
A guard had quit years ago after so many sightings of a tiny girl screaming for help that he could no longer bear it. While I stayed in the villa with other teachers and friends that second year, we all heard children running on the ceiling of the abandoned rooms upstairs, screams and voices, computers charged for no reason, locked windows that blew open, hidden pills, broken cabinets, and misplaced necklaces. One teacher channeled an angry spirit in her writing who simply stated, I am stuck here. All of these experiences are things that could be explained away, but with several people experiencing them, we started to talk about them freely. When some visiting artists came to stay at the villa for a few days, we shared the stories with them too. Most people I choose to tell about my belief in ghosts are believers, or at the very least, susceptible to the idea. I am careful to not tell people who are going to laugh it off or call me crazy. As a poet, I have learned to be okay with what my imagination might bring to me. When people call other people crazy, I don't get mad, I get bored. When people tell, go tell me ghosts don't exist, I just get bored. Laura Kelly Luter, a famed devil hunter who has devoted her life to looking for the physical evidence of a being lovingly called the Jersey Devil, that's not the sports team, has written of non-believers and her plight. Until someone proves that there isn't something out there, I will continue to believe that there is. And I will also continue my efforts to find proof that the Jersey Devil does, in fact, exist. So there. <laughs> Last summer, when we told these visitors at the villa about the ghosts, it felt natural enough. I didn't think so much to censor myself because the ghosts just seem real. I have long believed and longed to believe what Pablo Picasso told me, that everything you can imagine is real. One night last summer, another teacher and I ar arrived home late from dinner. We heard someone or something calling to us from the lemon garden right outside the villa. I thought I had heard, Daddy, come here. We got very scared and ran in the villa, clutching our neon Italian leather purses, bought very cheaply, I might add, to our chests. We talked each other into going back and seeing who was there. Who is there? Who is there? My friend shrieked. We heard, it is Hortense. Hortense was an old owner of the villa. We walked into the garden with shaky knees, only to find not the apparition of Hortense, but the visiting artist laughing at us. <laughs> I didn't find it funny. But it's okay if we find it funny now, of course. One of the visitors, let's call him Demon from now on, proceeded to tell me I needed to see a psychiatrist. After about two minutes, I realized I wasn't going to be able to control my anger in any sort of good way, and so I went inside, happy to be in the arms of the real ghosts in my room, not among the placid thoughts of living demons. Samuel Johnson has said of ghosts, 
It is wonderful that 5,000 years have now elapsed since the creation of the world, and still it is undecided whether or not there has ever been an instance of the spirit of any person appearing after death. All argument is against it, but all belief is for it. All arguments, logical and steeped in what we know of science, can easily refute any belief in ghosts. The most salient argument that ghost believers have is that they have seen one. And the imaginative space of a being having seen something, let alone a dead spirit, is not something that we ever fully believe in. But why not? As a poet, I think a lot about belief and in the belief of what my mind will bring to me. There are a lot of things that enter my mind that I choose to translate into language. All poems contain images, and these images have been in the poet's brain and hang in the balance always to be given to the reader upon reading. And in a poem, images have weight so that you cannot help but believe in them. Emily Dickinson has said of belief, on the subjects of which we know nothing, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. The thing about ghosts is that once they have entered your imaginative space, there is no way not to believe in them. As I mentioned, I once saw a ghost. The sighting of the ghost. The poet John Wieners wrote, I can only say real happiness yields from the world of poems and its practitioners are secret, sacred vessels to an ancient divinity. As I mentioned before, I think poetry is special because it connects us to the imagination, another world, or perhaps the other world, which is a physical space that poems interact with and encounter. In his 1940 book, The Imaginary, Sartre writes that when a writer creates something, he or she has visions, and that these visions are made into a very real space in the brain. Sartre's idea seems to me very much in line with what Dickinson writes of in her poem about death, that after a great pain, a formal feeling comes. And this is a poem you should have in your packet. Do I have a volunteer who'd like to come up and read it? I can't really see you, but if you, if you kind of wave it, wave, wave the hand, if any volunteer want to come up, it's, it'll be kind of fun, or, or maybe not. Maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> Rebecca, do you want to read it? <laughs> I could just read it. You know, I could, okay. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, my new best friend. Jessica, you're going to have to stay with me the whole time. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. After a great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore and yesterday or centuries before? The feet mechanical go round, a wooden way of ground or air or aught, regardless grown, a quartz contentment like a stone. This is the hour of lead remembered if outlived as freezing persons recollect the snow first chill then stupor then the letting go thank 
What's your name? Oh, 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 okay. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. <coughs> Rachel's going to do the rest of it. This is, uh, she, she didn't know. This is actually all planned. Uh, Rachel, I'll send you the $20 check later. Uh, as Dickinson writes, when a person dies after pain comes the formal feeling of cold to let go of the person as a being into a space where all voices commingle as freezing persons recollect the snow. Perhaps poets are the beings on this earth that can go into the freezing place and bring out the pieces of snow, something that Bernadette Mayer appropriated for her translation of Catullus number 48, which she describes as a formal field of kissing, of being in love, a place where one kiss is never enough, where one kiss is just never enough snow. I think the formal field is the land of light and ashes, a place where, as Jack Spicer wrote about in his lecture, dictation and a textbook of poetry, the dead speak from, where a poet receives radio messages from, a place which, as he writes, might be an outside, an id down in the cortex which you can't reach anyway, galaxies which seem to be sending radio messages to us with the whole of the galaxy blowing up just to say something to us. In comparing himself rather snarkily to Byron, Keats once wrote, he describes what he sees. I describe what I imagine. Mine is the hardest task. I tend to agree with him. Emily Bronte, in her 1844 poem, To Imagination, wrote, and these are just the first three stanzas, but the whole poem should be in your packet. She wrote, when weary with the long day's care and earthly change from pain to pain and lost and ready to despair, thy kind voice calls me back again. Oh, my true friend, I am not lone while thou canst speak with such a tone. So hopeless is the world without, the world within I doubly prize. Thy world where guile and hate and doubt and cold suspicion never rise, where thou and I in liberty have undisputed sovereignty. What matters it that all around danger and grief and darkness lie, if but within our bosoms bound we hold a bright unsullied sky? Warm with 10,000 mingled rays of suns that know no winter days. In this poem, Bronte imagined the imagination as a physical presence, a true friend, which gives everyday comfort, a possibility of a bright, unsullied sky, warm with 10,000 mingled rays of suns that know no winter days. This is a comforting way to think of the imagination, but I do not always see it this way. The unreal world can be a frightening place too, albeit with people who want to communicate with you, so are somehow also friends. When I first got to the Italian villa the first year, I couldn't sleep for about two weeks. Maybe I slept an hour or two here and there. I couldn't sleep because I felt certain something was in the room with me. It sounds crazy to say all of this to you, I know, but after a while I started talking to the presence in my room. In words, in my imaginative space, she spoke back. We communicated. 
She conveyed who she was and that she liked my jewelry and just wanted to hang out sometimes. This made sense. I mean, if you guys are looking at this jewelry, this is the kind of thing she was attracted to. So I understood that ghosts had good taste. But um, also because I would often see my jewelry in odd places after being locked away in a drawer or cabinet. She told me she had lived in the 16th century. In my mind, I had the vision of her as a teenager with long blonde hair. I was absolutely certain that this is what she looked like. For fear of seeming crazy, I didn't tell anyone about our communication, but once it happened, I felt free and slept like a baby. A few days later, my student told me at breakfast that she had something important to tell me. She said that when she was in the workout room, she would often see a blonde teenager watch her run on the treadmill from outside the window. She didn't feel really bad about it, but it had seemed kind of odd. But the, that day, the day before, the girl came into the workout room and tried to turn off her treadmill. I guess she was against exercising. My students saw an actual hand touch the off button of the treadmill. It was the reality of the girl's hand that made her the most scared. Because when she went to touch it and turned to implore the girl to stop, the hand and the girl disappeared into the air. I told my student about my encounter with what was likely the same entity. We both felt better. We both shared a belief in another dimension of being, and we had both interacted with the same ghost. There was a comfort in this shared reality, this shared imagination. This is probably the opposite of how one should feel in that situation. Were we both going insane? Did we both have heat stroke? Did we prove that ghosts exist? Still, it was something very special that our brains connected in this way with the same image. Up until this point, I hadn't actually seen the ghost, this blonde teenager from the 16th century. Despite my wanting to believe, I've always kind of not believed in ghosts too, and never having seen one made me feel slightly disconnected from them. The morning after my student shared her story with me, at about 8.30 a.m., I came back to the villa from running in the town. As I walked to my room in the summer early morning heat, I saw a teenager about a hundred feet from me in the olive grove. The girl had on periwinkle shorts, a particular shade my mother had gotten into in the 80s. I can see a pile of cable knit sweaters piled on her bed in my mind now. The girl was not so much wearing shorts as skorts. She was looking at the leaves of the tree as if she was looking for something, curious but partially with the manner of a scientist. I thought it was one of my students, so I looked down. I didn't feel like talking to anyone. A few seconds later, feeling guilty. After all, aren't teachers supposed to always be ready to talk to students? I looked up. The girl was gone. I blinked my eyes. There was no way a person could have gotten away so fast. That's odd, I said aloud to myself. It was only later that day when I revisited the memory again did I remember she had gleaming blonde hair. 
Only months later did I think of one of my favorite moments of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, where Scatman Crothers' character, Dick Holleran, explains to Danny, the psychic boy, that the images in the haunted hotel are like pictures in a book and that they aren't real, which the boy repeats to himself to comfort himself when he sees the ghosts of the hotel, he says, remember what Mr. Halloran said, it's just like pictures in a book, Danny, they aren't real. It's not important to me to try and figure out if what I saw was real or an apparition. What I had sensed through my eyes had been processed into my brain as material space, and that what may have been a real image of a ghost had weight in my brain. It took up space in my brain. Sometimes we see things in life very fast, so fast that we doubt ourselves, but we still know they are there. For example, oftentimes when we have mice in our kitchen, or is it just me, and they flash by us with a split second to register what they are. How often we can doubt what we saw, but still we have evidence to know is there. In the case of mice, there are droppings, broken breadcrumbs, bananas with bite marks. With ghosts, there are, I now keep my bananas in the refrigerator. It's kind of a good trick. You know, shorter shelf life, but less money. With ghosts, there are often residues that are imperceptible, existing wholly within the imagination. With love, isn't it love that we have felt even when the physical reality has passed? Still, love is felt so clearly and never-ending, without sometimes so much as a sight of the beloved. We don't need to see or touch a person to love them until the day we die. Just ask someone who has lost a person they have loved to refute this. Poetry needs a belief in a material imagination. You can't always see what you hold in your imagination, but imagination is deeply felt. In his book, The Double Flame, in an essay called The Kingdoms of Pan, Octo Octavio Paz says of poetry, To be sure, poetry is made up of words linked together, which give off reflections, glints, iridescences. But what it shows us, are they realities or illusions? Rimbaud said, and sometimes I saw what man believed he saw. Fusion of seeing and believing. In joining of these two words lies the secret of poetry and its testimony. What the poem shows us we do not see with our carnal eyes, but with the eyes of the spirit. Poetry lets us touch the impalpable and hear the tide of silence that covers a landscape devastated by insomnia. Poetic testimony reveals us to another world inside this world, the other world that is this world. The senses, without losing their powers, become servants of the imagination and let us hear the inaudible and see the invisible. But isn't this what happens in dreams and in erotic encounters? Poetry has the ability to have us interact with the imaginary because words together in the space of a poem make new realities. They make all the illusions of the imaginary real through language. 
Paz explains that much of this is about an embodied imagination of making the unreal, the almost real, actually real. When we dream and when we couple, we embrace phantoms. Each of the two who constitute the couple possesses a body, a face, and a name, but their real reality, precisely at the most intense moment of the embrace, disperses in a cascade of sensation, which disperses in turn. There is a question that all lovers ask each other, and in it the erotic epitome is epitomized. Who are you? A question without an answer. The senses are and are not of this world. By means of them, poetry traces a bridge between seeing and believing. By that bridge, imagination is embodied and bodies turn into images. And while any kind of thinking makes the imagination embodied, it is the holy space of a poet's projected imagination, a space where new language can create new words that does so, so importantly. Many years ago, as my father was suffering from Alzheimer's, which he later died from, he would often go into a trance and say that he had been talking to his brother and father, who had both died decades earlier. Everyone around us, all the doctors and nurses, said it was a psychotic break of the disease, that what he thought he saw was the residue of his long-term memory breaking down and making him think the past was the present. They would give him something like the drug Abilify and he would quiet down. But who is to say that he didn't see his brother again? Who is to say that his long-term memory wasn't a thing being eroded away by the disease, but a space he was visiting, which he could visit again one day soon for an eternity? In the same 1965 lecture I mentioned above, Spicer wrote of Yeats's wife Georgie's encounter with the spirits, how on one particular occasion she got possessed by spirits and Yeats was able to speak directly to them on a train ride to Los Angeles. When Yeats asked them, what are you here for? They spoke to him through her and said, we're here to give metaphors for your poetry. A generous set of ghosts that Yeats knew. <laughs> but I think all spirits in the spirit world are generous when you meet them in the space of the imagination within a poem. Does a material imagination make a visionary poetry? Obviously, I am not the only poet to have ever actually seen an apparition. A while ago, maybe almost 15 years ago by now, I remember reading an anthology of sorts on visionary poets. In the book, there was a story of Blake and how he saw angels in the trees as a kind of physical reality of angels. When we see, we perceive that the thing we see has weight, especially if it is a person-like thing, like an angel. To have a vision of something, to perceive in a visionary way, is to in some way assume that what we see is real or weighty, is affected by gravity, is material. Blake saw the angel, believed that he saw it, and it changed him. It created a space in his mind for the angel to go. He wrote poems about it with new words and new language and new angels from this imaginative space. 
we read these poems still. Hart Crane's favorite four lines from Blake's poem, The Everlasting Gospel, go like this. This life's five windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through, the eye. To quote poet and Crane scholar Adam Fitzgerald, what Crane loved most about these lines was that a poet must not see with the eye but through it, that to see with it was to use the eye as a vegetable, a meat mechanism to view only the natural world, but that to see through the eye was to see the entire universe and all of its interconnections, spirits, spaces, and lands. I was recently on a tour of a collection of art objects in a very old museum, and the art historian who gave the tour was talking about some of the portraits, how now how we might have a portrait on the wall today, but in the past people kept cloaks or cloth over their portraits. It was thought that a portrait or art object was not something that you looked upon daily because the act of seeing a vision was bi-directional so that when you looked at something, it looked back at you and changed you. I think in this way that a vision has viscera, that the bi-directionality of the seeing one to the thing being seen means that all vision and imaginative space created between the two things has weight. Kierkegaard, in his Fear and Trembling, discusses three levels of perception of the realms of being, aesthetic, sensual, moral, and spiritual. He believed that most people go the three-step path, and aesthetic or sensual experience leads to a moral understanding, which leads to an interaction with the spiritual world. He argued that the aesthetic spiritual, when done right, takes a person right up to the spiritual realm. That when we make a truly beautiful piece of art, we make a fast train into the land of specters. When a poem happens, meaning and a shared imagination happen between a poet and a reader. The poem is the testimony. The poet and reader are in mental anesthetic and then spiritual communion. What of image, what of color? In another lecture entitled, What is Color in Poetry, or Is it the Wild Wind in the Space of the Word? I discuss how the materiality of the imagination can be accessed wholly through a poet's perfect use of color. Einstein famously said of the imagination, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we know now and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there will ever be to know and understand. It makes sense that Einstein, with his theory of relativity, felt that way. And thinking of color, it is true that color in a poem is always relational and connects us directly to the senses and so to the imagination. In the case of color, imagination is a primal source of the sensual one can experience in a poem. I have always thought that HD's poems are so perfect because they focus closely on images and make sure that her picture of whatever she mentions in her poem is shared completely with her reader. Take, for example, her poem, Sea Violet. 
The white violet is scented on its stalk. The sea violet, fragile as agate, lies fronting all the wind among the torn shells on the sandbank. The greater blue violets flutter on the hill, but who would change for these? Who would change for these one root of the white sort? Violet, your grasp is frail on the edge of the sand hill, but you catch the light, frost, a star edges with its fire. In this poem, H.D. focuses on the image of the sea violet for all three stanzas of the poem. Even when she describes the greater blue violets in the second stanza, it is to compare them to the sea violet and their ultimate unworthiness. The sea violet describes so well over and over again, turned over again and again to be peered at many angles by the reader, becomes part of a shared imagination with the reader. By the end of the poem, H.D. and the reader share the image of the sea violet, its gorgeous white flower body embodied as imaginative reality in both of their minds. Part of H.D.'s achievement, I might argue, has to do with her keen use of color. It is the white of the sea violet and the blue of the other violets which serve to distinguish both so simply and so dramatically. It is the perfect choice of colors which makes the shared imagination, the shared imaginative space and material of the reader and the poet, at least in part, in communion. The violets have been agreed upon between poet and reader, at least in part, because of their colors. In a separate lecture, I will make the argument that color is a kind of conduit that connects the spiritual and material worlds. That, as H.D. wrote, means that when color in a poem is used to great effect, it becomes transcending color, containing the great heat, the compass of the spectrum, all color. I guess that what I am trying to say here is that color is not simply a decorative element in a poem. Color makes an expanse, a field, a shared formal field with which to plant more shared components of the material imagination, a poem. Color makes this space bigger, this imaginative space more specific and bigger, gives it weight, makes it solid. Even without the specific color words, people can communicate the tone and weight of a color through language. It is not about the magic of a word for color. It is about the magic of sharing the weighted imaginative space between speaker and listener that a description of color can produce. To describe a thing's color is to make the energy of it change. So I wanted to um, share with you a Bernadette Mayer poem called Very Strong February, but it might be a good time for another volunteer. Does anybody want to come up and read this poem? It is in your packet. Oh, wherever you are. <laughs> Would you like to come read the poem to us? I don't, did somebody raise their hand? Oh, do you want to? Okay, do you want to just read it? Is that okay, just to read it from there? <laughs> Can somebody give him the phone? Okay. This is just like just like class actually. <laughs> You're getting it. You're getting it. Thank you. Thank you.
Very strong February. Thank you. And, and maybe just really loud. I don't know. Everybody can hear, right? Okay. A man and a woman pretend to be white ice. Three men of the lavender door are closed in by the storm. Strong treasures and money by the green pines. One weekend fisherman and blue painters watch a vivid file of white winds blow visibility from the mountain beyond the Black Valley. That means, or then you know, you're, you're in a big cloud of it. It's brilliant white mid-February. A week or two left on distracting black trees before the brownish buds obscure your view of the valley. Looking for company, four dark men and a burnt Sienna woman come in for three minutes, then bye-bye, like a gold watch left on the chair, or part of the sum of what big white families think up to store for long yellow Sundays to eat from brown ecological company. <laughs> At some point later, Gorgeous Red Adventure stops. Did you forget to turn it down and laugh in the face of the fearful white storm anyway? Or a picture of brilliant blue for a further Sunday memory in a coloring book? You talk as lightly as you can, refusing a big pink kiss. <laughs> you burned the Sunday sauce crushed red tomatoes. You turn it down to just an orange glow. This particular storm, considering the pause and the greenish fall before it, Reminds me of its mildness of imitating a sea green memory that is actually in the future. I imitate an imagined trumpet sound. <laughs> or the brilliant purple words of a man or woman I haven't met yet. Or perhaps it's a gray-haired man I already know who said something yesterday. To a mutual friend who will give me the whole story in black and white tomorrow or the day after. Just as the big orange plows for the local businesses go to work to push away the rest of the white snow that will fall. Oh, thank you. What, what's your name? What is your name? What's your name? Greg. Greg? Greg. Greg. Thank you, Greg. We could hug later if you want. No pressure. <laughs> Almost every line in Mayer's poem includes a color. I often think to myself, what would this poem be without these colors? How would they contain their material realities? What is the black in a week or two left on distracting black trees? Without it, the line would be a week or two left on distracting trees. Without black, the trees are regular green and brown trees. What is the pink in refusing a big pink kiss you burn the Sunday sauce? The bursting warmth of a pink kiss influencing the warm color of a tomato Sunday sauce in our imaginations. Without it, the line would be refusing a big kiss you burn the Sunday sauce. In this colorless line, the sauce could be any color, a burnt black and not as sexy and warm. What about the line or the brilliant purple words of a man or woman I haven't met yet? Without the purple adding a touch of royalty and strangeness to the words, the line would simply be, or the brilliant words of a man or woman I haven't met yet. Brilliant non-color words that are flat and meaningless. It is the colors in Mayer's poem that takes it from a 
didactic explanation of a series of meaningless everyday events into the spectral space of the poet's imagination, a bi-directional kind of looking between Mayer and us in the space of the poem, a multifaceted meaning-making machine, or a poem as they call it. In Mayer's poem, color creates a kind of imaginative testimony. Both the poet and the reader are part of its testimony through the use of color and the way the color changes reality. Color in a poem can change the shared imaginative space the poem creates. It can make a new reality, one of the imperceptible coming into reality, completely terrifying, as in the following Stevens poem, Disillusionment of Ten O'Clock, where he embodies disembodied nightgowns with the hallucinatory color choices. The houses are haunted by white nightgowns. None are green or purple with green rings, are green with yellow rings, are yellow with blue rings. None of them are strange with socks of lace and beaded censures. People are not going to dream of baboons and periwinkles. Only here and there an old sailor, drunk and asleep in his boots, catches tigers in red weather. In the poem, Stevens uses a lot of colors with simple color names, white-green, although he throws a gorgeous blurple like periwinkle in there. Still, he hints at the multiplicity of reality, at the effect of color on reality, with his purple with green rings and yellow with blue rings, which produce the unfamiliar, familiar feeling of the spiritual realm, the actual weirdness and awe of the ghosts that haunt the house in their white nightgowns, come in through nightgowns that are unexpectedly non-white, the sad and drunk old sailor, poor guy, caught in a never-ending world of red weather. Stevens has written in his own lectures, The Noble Writer and the Sound of Words, and in The Figure of the Youth as Virile Poet, that he believed the modern imagination was an escape from the violence of living, of reality, and that the imagination loses vitality as it ceases to adhere to what is real. When it adheres to the unreal and intensifies what is unreal, that effect is the maximum effect that it will ever have. Certainly here in his poem, the colors he makes of the unreal ghosts make the maximum effect upon the imagination and create a communion of shared imaginative space between poet, poem, and reader. Color is not the only sensual detail a poet can use to create a shared imagination with his or her reader, but it is an overwhelming one, one that defends the idea of a material imagination, I might say, vehemently. But there are many others to discuss and conjure at later times in later lectures. One of the most, the most precious one, is sound. What about reality that is not real? What about poetry? I have always loved the poem Song of a Man Who Has Come Through by D.H. Lawrence. And it goes like this. Not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. A fine wind is blowing the new direction of time. If only I let it bear me, 
carry me. If only it carry me. If only I am sensitive, subtle, oh delicate, a winged gift. If only most lovely of all I yield myself and am borrowed by the fine, fine wind that takes its course through the chaos of the world, like a fine and exquisite chisel, a wedge blade inserted. If only I am keen and hard like the sheer tip of a wedge driven by invisible blows. The rock will split. We shall come at the wonder. We shall find the Hesperides. Oh, for the wonder that bubbles into my soul. I would be a good fountain, a good well head, would blur no whisper, spoil no expression. What is the knocking? What is the knocking at the door in the night? It is something wants to do us harm. No, no, it is the three strange angels. Admit them. Admit them. There is lots to say about this poem, but of course, what I have always loved the most about the poem are the three strange angels. Who are they? Maybe it is the simple use of strange that gets to me. Like the tone of HD's perfect white or blue and sea violet, strange gives just enough to a reader to create a communion. The word strange doesn't really tell us much about who these angels are, but it gives us enough to know that they aren't of this world, that they are part of the imagination. Sometimes I think that when we write poetry, we always engage with ghosts. Maybe what we perceive quickly is what poetry collects for us, a space of half-impressions, of sensual residues, and maybe the things we only see or feel for an instant are the spaces of non-reality, super-reality, coming into this world. Is this maybe what Alice Notley meant when she wrote that all her life, since she was 10, she had been waiting to be in this hell here with us? Is the living within the real but a radio connection to a peaceful world of specters? And so, what for Blake was the hell of reality in his book of Thel, where he had to ask, why a little curtain of flesh on the bed of our desire? His question has haunted me all my life. Snow, snow. Did the blonde ghost bless me with the knowledge that the unseen is real, an openness to a door where other ghosts can pass through? Or did the blonde ghost make a crack in my sanity that may never be re-glued? Did she make it impossible for me to ever see reality as wholly palpable again? What seems most important about the event is how my student and I both shared her image. How much did our tellings and retellings of our encounters change her and change our memories of her and make her alive? Alive at once or alive again, isn't it all the same thing? To conclude, sighs of relief. To conclude, I bring in an image of William Blake's The Mathematician. Should be in there. An image of a person bent over his studies, his eyes focused on his theorem and not on the world around him. To me, he has always looked so much like a poet. 
sitting with his back bent, the burden of gravity and language and light and the night upon him. Perhaps an interpretation of this image is that the mathematician is so obsessed with the abstraction of reality that he can't see the beauty of the world around him, that maybe he sees only with, not through the eye, because he thinks and does not experience the world. Still, I can't help but think that this image is about the materiality of the imagination, that Blake's mathematician or poet makes a space with his paper where other thinkers can go, a space where we all can dare to go. In a recent show at the Whitney Museum, I watched a movie of Ken Jacobs' Apparition, Apparition Theater, which required 3D glasses. Among other images, one part of the theater was a group of shadows playing with balloons. And at one point, a sign goes up that says, balloons go into the audience and you can't tell what's real. Even though I knew they were not real balloons, I held my hands out to catch them as they bounded towards me. It was the magic of wanting to see the boundary between the real and the unreal dissolved, to see the curtain of flesh and the bed of my desire lifted once more. The imagination is a space where things can go, where we make things up and share them with others. But the imagination is not a vortex to suck the world up like the annihilation of death. The imagination is a holy space where things can live forever. Maxine Green, in her releasing the imagination, writes, The way things are for our life and body allows us only a partial view of things, not the kind of total view we might gain if we were godlike, looking down from the sky. But we can only know as situated beings. We see aspects of objects and people around us. We all live in a kind of incompleteness, and there is always more for us to see. Once again, this is where the imagination enters in as the felt possibility of looking beyond the boundary where the backyard ends or the road narrows, diminishing out of sight. I once had a dream. I don't remember the details, but I remember I woke up and I shot up in bed and said, maybe they give you the flowers in a different way. That's poetry. There is a shared consciousness among humans, and likely all animals, maybe all living things, but definitely humans, that we can share. We share the imagination through poetry. Alice Notley wrote in a recent poem, Last night I saw that when I flowed out and became all else, I was nothing. I was everything. We are the electricity. Carl Sagan once said, We are all made of star stuff. We are the star stuff. We are the electricity. The hope of the balloons bounding towards us. The holy holograms. This reality may be a violent one, but isn't it the case that we will all be glad to know each other forever through poetry, to always choose one root of the white sort over a million blue violets, to be in the hell and the heaven of the space of the imagination, to take a chance that this space is there and make this life the immortal one? 
If you love someone and they die, make them come alive again in a poem. Read a poem again and the dead don't have to be gone. I promise you this much. Think of it another way. Read a poem, then you won't have to be gone one day too. To hell and back again, I send you. Thank you very much. And now, we'll hear a wide-ranging conversation between Lasky, paranormal investigator Vinnie Carbone, and mystic artist and spiritual healer Lou Flores. The first two voices you'll hear are Lasky and Flores, as they wonder about why we separate what is supernatural or paranormal from the rest of experience. You know, why we think that there is shame or why we think that there is this kind of like disconnect between the synthesis of talking all these things together. You know, I think of even the way that we think about like learning systems in a school. A lot of times we like make this binary dichotomy between science and the humanities, you know, which is <laughs> not even supernatural. I mean, just anything artistic or books and, and we sort of like kind of pit you know, those sides against each other. Why do you, why do we think that it's so hard to talk about, um, you know, in, in maybe in circles that we might talk to or just talk to someone in the grocery store about, you know, about ghosts or about the supernatural? Why is there that stigma or that shame do we feel? Like if we feel it's true or, I mean, I'd love to, I, I know for myself, yeah, there's always like a little bit of, um, a little bit of that when I try to talk to people, but it's even, yeah, really interesting to hear what both of you say, you know, because when you, when you say you're a paranormal investigator, do people, you know, question it and do you feel, have to feel like on the defensive about it or something? Oh, well, I, I love the idea of like us talking about what is really the norm, right? Because yeah, exactly. So for years, I was actually very in the closet about being a paranormal investigator. You know, I had to feel people out first before I would share that information. Um, just because uh, naturally I thought people were going to think I was crazy. And so the first time it kind of turned around for me was when I went to my high school reunion. Mm -hmm. And at that time I had kind of started to post a, a few videos on uh, you know, like on Facebook or interviews that I may have done or something like that. And I went back, I went to my high school reunion and, you know, these are people I haven't really seen in like 10 years at that time. And what I found out much to my pleasant surprise was that, you know, I had kind of had people coming up to me like, Oh, you do that ghost stuff. And then they were all telling me their ghost stories. And then they were asking me questions. I was like, Oh, you know what? Way more people are into this than, than might let on. Now, conversely, I went for a job interview a couple of years back. And um, part of the job interview was that I had to go through a psychological evaluation told him about, you know, how I was commissioned to write a play. And he asked me what the play was about. And I told him, oh, you know, and I knew what he was looking for. And I, so I very, was careful with my words. And I said, well, supposedly the house is haunted. So they wanted me to write a play about the ghosts. I could have said the house is haunted. So I wrote a play about the ghosts, right? I think, for, I think the big reason why people might not, might hesitate when it comes to this topic is because, as human beings, we, we love to justify and we love to have explanation. And if there's a world in which ghosts are real, 
well, then what the hell else could there be out there? You know, we like to be in control. Um, I definitely agree with Vinny, uh, but also I think there's layers of colonialism and racism. That's absolutely oh, for sure. Competition, you know, and I know that you know, you know, right? But I just you know want to name that in the conversation just because um, there's very intentional, like historical ways in which um, in, in which like we try and like make people or you know we, we classify people as ignorant the more that they like think about witchcraft or ghosts or like what have you and that that was a very like very intentional um strategic way of um of of um having us all you know kind of give up our cultures you know and so there's a, a little bit of a code switch as well like I know the way that I talk to like my, you know, my other like POC folk sometimes is very different from the way that I talk to like white community or white friends. And so, and it's, it's just a, you know, it's a, I, it's a rephrasing, you know, like Vinny was talking about supposedly, right? Like mm -hmm. all the different ways in which we kind of like couch experience, you know, to be able to kind of make it more palatable or like, you know, that kind of thing. And I do that all the time. I mean, hello, as a professional witch, like, right? Like, I mean, come on. Uh, so that that's all to say, like, I, there's, there's just a, the, for me, it's like, the, it, there's a intentional strategy around keeping us away from things, like, and not that ghosts can empower us. I mean, I think that they can, but I think like supernatural investigations, they're like talking about, like Vinny was talking about like control and ways in which like, we start to look at things outside of our personal like control of the environment, that's where it can get a little bit radical and start to put ideas in people's heads about like, well, what is autonomy? You know, like, what is the soul? You know, how do I feel liberated in the body? Like, what does that mean to like leave my, you know, can I, you know, how do I leave myself? Or, you know, all these kind of ideas of like all the implications of having ghosts. Um, so I think that there, there's a little bit of a power dynamic on top of it, um, you know, and I'm not saying everybody has that, but, but just as like the sub, the, the over culture kind of, you know, um, the more that we distance ourselves from the lands, distance ourselves from like seeing things as being normalized um, and, and consistently like speaking to, you know, and I know this might sound crazy, but like, you know, seeing the spirits of a tree or being in conversation like, in environment where it's not just like I'm praying to the, the tree, but I'm seeing like the whole totality of how it holds its space, you know, kind of idea. Um, anyway, so I, I just wanted to throw those things out there. Um, and also just like that, I, I love the fact that we can have tool sets of, you know, tools of ways of kind of quantifying experience, but also uh, and not that that isn't important, but also like I'm not I'm not going to dismiss my personal like body space um, just because I don't have like this. It's not a static, you know, on this on, like on a static scale or like that kind of stuff. So I, you know, like I, I'm a little bit wary of having to quantify my experience for somebody else in that way. Not that I think that Vinny at all is you know talking about that, and you know, but and of course that's part of you know um, investigation, right? Like you know, having quantifiable proof that something's there, but what, you know, how do we kind of, what are the other spectrums of quantifying 
you know, there's, I don't know, there's just so many places where we try and confine um, possibility or try and confine what, what is in our spaces. And like, there's just a non-acknowledgement, you know, how much do we not acknowledge that's just inherently there, you know, in the everyday. Yeah, that's what surprised me about it. You know, when I saw a ghost is how it was not like, you know, like, hey, you know, I'm trying to scare you. I'm trying. It was just simply looked as normal as anything else. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. um, Yeah, it just wasn't anything extraordinary, like the sublime hiding in plain sight. You know, I always kind of related the paranormal to an onion and that you just have different scenes different things layered on top of each other wrapped around each other like a ball of twine you know or layered um just kind of playing out their own doing their own thing well and one thing that i that i really loved in in you know your writing was this idea of like presence and residue and how ghosts you know that there can be a um even like in the idea of multi-dimensionalness of ghosts right that that there are some that are residuals of a uh, of um, of a soul. You know, there's a there's a place where it has been that that like waiting for itself, or you know, this longing for itself. But also that there there can be experiences of like self awareness, and you know, um, that a ghost can also be future looking in certain ways. If that makes sense, that it's not just in the longing or in the residue or in the wake of itself. That there can be a like there can be moments of self awareness and engagement and interaction. One question is, you know, I know we talked about like spaces being um, haunted or residues or whatever, and um, I wonder, do we feel that art? And art objects or just objects in general have a consciousness or a will of some sort? Or is it related to what, you know, we've been talking about, about a space having that energy, that residue, and that gets rubbed on the object. But I just think about specifically art, you know, when an artist, I know, and I don't mean to use the big A in an elitist way, but you know, like when, when like an artist creates something, does it have a will? Does it have a consciousness? Does it have a kind of life of its own certainly i do believe that you know if i as an investigator am willing to believe that a house could be haunted why not a mirror a piano a couch or you know uh, a car so yeah i think i think it's absolutely possible i think it's a yeah i think so absolutely and that was brilliant i love that um yes it kind of gives me the idea of like, can our work be haunted too, right? And about all the like, whether it's racial slurs or things that have really negative like connotations and what about that like makes that a haunted thing? Or you know what I mean? Like outside of the, the definition, but even just the word itself can feel haunted, right? So yes, absolutely. I think that, that art can be haunted, poems can be haunted. Um, and that hauntings aren't evil. Like there can actually be a good haunting maybe, or like there can be like a, like there can be a good residue. There, there is a very, mis, there's a very unfortunate misconception by people outside of the paranormal community that, you know, ghosts equates to bad or evil. But, you know, what I've always said is that it's not a matter of is, is a place haunted. 
or the ghost is out to settle a score. It's, you know, what, why are they still haunting the place? If they were cool in life, they're going to be cool in death. They might just be hanging out to check you out, or they may not even know they're dead. Oh, but if they got unfinished business, they've got unfinished business. That doesn't make them, you know, a bad person or a bad spirit. So, yeah, that's 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 definitely a uh, an unfortunate misconception. Thing I remember one time I went to like this um, forest that everybody says was haunted, and I had a student, and she said, "Oh, that you know that place is very noisy." <laughs> really, just made me think about so many things about time not being linear, which I feel like really certain it's not, or like time is like a gyre and, and that like that, like is possible, like every way that we're kind of interacting with a potential future, you know, is like interacting with, with a self future or something. And yeah. it's like, I just think about this, like what just happened with um, Joe Biden winning. I know I told you, I mean, this is my own like lame, you know, interaction with like, you know, the whatever premonition or something, but definitely like for a few weeks, I just heard people chanting like Biden, Biden. And that has happened to me like a few times in my life where it's like, I'm just like, no, no, like he's going to, don't worry about it. I like heard it. And I, you know, at like 1130 here, I, people just started chanting, like they were screaming. I, they weren't being like Biden, but, but you know what I mean? It's like, it was that moment. And I'm really sure that I definitely accessed the future, at least that's how I interpret it. But it's so confusing, just like, you know, so how do you think time and ghosts and all that, you know, work? Well, I, I like, I think that there's a place of eruption and ecstasy where um, the emotionality of a moment can break, it, like, is so powerful that it breaks into a different dimension or a different, like, a different, a different time or a different spaceness than what we usually activate in our normal you know, kind of everyday life. Um, in Brujeria and Curanderismo, like um, traditional folk, um, uh, folk um, uh, traditions in Latin American culture, um, in the traumatic ways, we talk about this spiritual element called susto or fright, and that it literally can seem like a soul loss or the loss of your, um, your shadow self or your shadow, right? And that it's these moments where you're literally shocked out of yourself. Um, and that there, when that happens, there are pieces that get left in the etheric. Um, and so, um, and so A, just thinking about, right, what is the etheric and where, like, how can a piece of me be left in, in you know, a, you know, um, in a non-corporeal space, right? Um, but B, then, you know, as the, the worker, how do we bring that, that soul recovery into, you know, being? How do we kind of um, uh, pull those, those essences um, that were left in those spaces back? Um, and so sometimes, like, in ghost, um, like, specific, like, poltergeist um, uh, energies, there can be... Um, you know, a person who's so traumatic, you know, has so much trauma or is going through so much emotional um, uh, crisis that they're, that, that their parts of themselves are poking out. And so it can either invite other entities in, or it can be those parts of themselves that are causing like issues in the space because they're not aware that they're distanced from the self. 
And just as you were talking, like thinking about like those times of high emotionality and because I, I do think that like definitely if I like love someone, I'll be like, oh, they're driving back on their driveway right now. You know, I'll just be sure. But if I don't care, I really couldn't access much about, you know, if somebody's like, can you, you know, like I could never do what you do. You know, can you tell me about my wife? And I'd be like, I don't know, because I don't, you know, care about your wife. It, it was, and But I also was thinking about this idea of anxiety, like, and, you know, when you were saying like the trauma, just like, how does, you know, for example, now is a moment of fear. So how did that anxiety make, give like a shard of the self access to it potentially? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, even how, how you know, a culture can have so loss, you know, generational so loss, right? And it can haunt itself. So, you know, uh, all the legacies um, of, um, of those like fright moments get literally discharged in the cellular memory that's passed down from memory to, from, from child to, you know, adult to child. And so um, that there's, it doesn't just rupture the, the time and space in the moment, but it can actually rupture in the DNA, um, the narrative that go, you know, that, that, that's there. Um, yeah. So, and that, that in terms of time, um, that part of the work is calling back and uplifting, you know, those parts of ourselves, you know, back there, because for me at least time doesn't exist in that like linear way. Um, and so, um, so, so, you know, there, there's, um, yeah, I, I mean, so there's ways of in, you know, calling, calling it forward or calling it back. Um, and even, you know, we, that this idea of like praying seven generations, you know, project seven generations back um, and seven generations forward because it takes that long for the next incarnation of the self to fully materialize so that there are parts of our, you know, lap, like parts of our soul that are that are emanations from seven generations ago and then also that are emanating seven generations now and that the work that we're doing is affecting both of those on either side. I love that so much. Do you feel like, how do you, do you ever feel like something's being channeled through you or that there are entities around you that you connect with that are part of your like imaginative self or your like imaginative space? Well, thank you so much for asking this because um, I want to ask, you know, I want to, I want to ask you more about this and like understand this because I have this problem. I mean, definitely like with poetry where I've always like very very early I just started writing poems like no you know nobody in my family wrote poem nobody like talked about poetry I mean they were like smart my parents were smart but they weren't never 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 like a poetry thing I always 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 felt I was channeling things like I never felt I feel embarrassed to say it embarrassed and elitist to say it because I want to think that we can you know I do think we can teach poetry create spaces you know create space to open up the membranes but definitely for me it was not something I ever felt like I chose and I felt like I was speaking the voices of people that couldn't speak and that's what I always thought of poetry was, and it, it always sometimes would feel like a gift and a lot of times feel like a burden. So I was like, this isn't what I necessarily want to do anyway. Yeah. Do what do you, do you feel that way about like your writing and your work and everything? Or Absolutely. When even, I mean, like you're talking about, like, how do you articulate a voice outside of just like what you're hearing? Like what's the, like the emotionality or what's the, 
because it's not, for me at least, it's not just the voice. It can be a feeling. It can be a, a scene that's being played in my mind. And that all that's like part of the, the spirit of whatever I'm engaging. And so having to verbalize that or being able to like cross the, you know, cross it, you know, cross my own experience into, you know, relating that to an experience that somebody else might have is so difficult. It is so difficult. Um, <laughs> and that what I find is at least in terms of my guides and the way the information comes in is that it might not even be about the symbol. It's about my relationship to that symbol. And so they're bringing my attention to the feeling that I have around it. And so that then gives me like the ex like gives me the key of explaining it to the person in front of me. So um, like an example, like um, sometimes like whenever I, I draw, you know, a, a specific card, like the hair box in my deck, um, an image pops of this time whenever I was five and this red ball was like, I was playing with this red ball. It rolled into this big grove of trees and I look, looked up and it was just one of those moments of like seeing spirit, you know, just like feeling the joy and ecstasy of being, right? Um, and then it was like over in a second. So like sometimes that image pops up. And so if I explain that, like I'm seeing a kid with a red ball, right? And they're like, what are you doing? Like really, bitch, what are you talking about, right? So, but what, I, what, what, like the way that I try and, you know, kind of articulate, like articulate to the person is what did it feel like when you first had that aha moment or you first felt like presence in your own presence in yourself and that like that, that like, kind of the arms wrapped around you, you know? How your aesthetic sense matters. And I feel like that's something like as a poet that I've always tried to tell people and also believed so much, like it's not, it's not, um, it's not that it's like so, so important, but it's, it's important enough to, it's not frivolous information. It's not like I, I'm, you know, like the color pink and, um, you know, I just do and oh but you can make it blue it's like no if, if I'm like really doing this thing it's kind of I want to pay attention to my instinct to have it be pink it's not just like a random thing or whatever I have all these deep associations and that kind of like possibility of translation you know which might not be actually involving language is really like important to to pay attention to like to and respect and respect in everyone like make sure everyone knows that I feel like you know I feel like that's one way that we keep um people submissive in society is we take their imaginations down so low and they don't trust the fact that all those things in like your memory you know memories too or the color whatever is like so valid and that's what you know be, once you don't start trusting that pink is important you start not trusting any of those messages and you just listen to everyone else you know because well, that, that, that's that, that's your magic like that's your that's your potency that was dorothea lasky giving her lecture on the materiality of the imagination followed by a conversation on the supernatural between lasky paranormal investigator Vinnie Carbone, and mystic artist and spiritual healer Lou Flores. Next week, we'll be back with The Beast, How Poetry Makes Us Human, and a conversation with puppeteer Christopher Mullins. 
Lasky's book of collected Bagley Wright Lecture Series lectures, Animal, was published by Wave Books in 2019 and is available for purchase at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about these and other lectures by Joshua Beckman, Dorothy Alasky, Timothy Donnelly, Srikanth Reddy, Terence Hayes, Rachel Zucker, Cedar Saigo, Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarno, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to Seattle Arts and Lectures for partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC. Thank you.